hey, uh, I'm imagining people visiting at our Bolingbrook campus. We want you to know you are welcome, and we're glad you're here. Everybody at 95th, Wheaton, uh, Hobson, I just love being with you all. You may notice I've got some props. I, I am teaching on, on grain. You know, and I'm not much of a farmer, but I thought, I need, if I'm going to teach on grain, we got to have grain there. And so I found this place. You gotta, it's amazing how you don't have to go very far west of here to get into farm country. And I found this farm supply store that sold grain. So I drove out there in a little mom and pop shop. As I pull in, there are these farmers standing in the parking lot, you know, talking, probably farming stuff. And I thought to myself, I, may, I had this passing thought, I may just blend in to this group. <laughs> now, now, I was dressed in a t-shirt and faded jeans, and I drive a pickup truck. You know, you and your fancy schmancy suburban car would have never fooled anybody to fitting in. But as I pull in my pickup truck, I'm like, they may think I'm one of them. And I got out, and as I'm walking up, I notice they're checking me out. You're kind of looking my way, and I'm like, saunter like a farmer, Jeff. You know? They had bales of hay in the parking lot, kind of dividing up the lot. And I realized, I'm going to have to step over or walk on this bale of hay. I go, I'm going to make it look like I've been walking on hay since I was a little kid. So I stepped up on there. Turns out this bale must have been old. It was loose. And, and the, there's like a twine that holds a bale of hay together. Well, my foot got under the twine. <laughs> and as I stepped off, I started going down. And I took like three big steps trying to catch myself, and it was to no avail. I wiped out in epic form. I, I split my pants open at the knee. I bloodied my knee. I'm laying on my back. <laughs> And these five farmers walk around me going, that was awesome. <laughs> and I, I get up and I go into this shop and the guy behind the desk says, you okay? <laughs> he said, I saw the whole thing through the window. And I'm like, oh, no. I said to him, hey, I, I, I'm here to buy some wheat grain. And he said, well, he said, uh, well we have wheat seed. And I'm like, yep, that's what I want. And uh, he said, how much you want? I go, two bags. He said, what size bags? You know, 50 pounds. And I'm like, all right. Uh, I talked with him and he finally asked me, he's like, so what are you doing with the wheat? Um, He's like, obviously you're not a farmer. And I'm like, oh, come on. What do you mean? And I said, all right, I'm a pastor, and I'm using it as a prop in my sermon. He's like, this is a first. I'm like, oh, you don't normally sell to pastors? He's like, never. And I'm like, well, since you know who I am, I go, let me ask you a question. I'm a little confused. I said wheat grain. You said seed. Do you have both? (laughs) And he said, well, it's the same thing. I go, it is? And he explained to me. He's like, yeah, the term grain or the term seed is used depending on what the use of it will be. It's the same thing. He said, every piece of wheat has the potential to serve two very different functions. If it's going to be consumed, you can call it grain. 
And if it's to be planted in the ground, you call it seed. He goes, and trust me, he goes, most of the time we sell it as seed to be planted by the farmers. He goes, but boy, can you eat it? He goes, I've done it. We, we uh, take this very same wheat and we grind it and we make some of the best bread you will ever eat. And I'm like, wow, that's good to know. And in fact, that preaches. And I realized that this knowledge was really helping me understand the text that we're going to be studying together. But before I get into that text, let me just do a quick review. This is the last week in our five-week series called Chain Reaction. So let's do a review of the five weeks. Just remind you, it's called Chain Reaction because we're talking about the difference love for God makes. We are passionate about loving God. Jesus said it's the most important thing of all of our faith is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so our mission statement is to love him more. So more love him. And we're trying to create a community of people who are passionate lovers of God because we know that if you love God, it'll change so much in your life. Love for God is like that first domino to fall. And when that happens, boom, 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 all these things begin to change. What changes? Well, for one, you get a new love. That was the title of the first week of this series. We find that when you love God, you have a new love, which is love for people, your neighbor. In fact, the more you love God, the more you find yourself loving others. That's how God made it to work. And week two was a new satisfaction. So curious. People who don't love God, they think they will be satisfied with more stuff in this world. Those who have fallen in love with the Lord, they're like, you know what? You can have the stuff. I want him. I want to know him in relationship and experience his presence, hear his voice, enjoy his love, because it's friendship with God that will satisfy my soul and nothing else. New satisfaction. People, uh, week three was a new purpose. People realize that when you love God more and more, there's a new reason to live each day. It used to be all about me. I want a better life. I'm trying to build me a better life. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.15, and he died, speaking of Christ, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. And we, when you fall in love with the Lord, you say, you know what? I'm living for Jesus. Take my life, Lord. Use me to advance your cause in any way you can because I'm living for you. And then that brought us last week to a new example. The more you love Christ, the more you want to be like him. The more you look at the beauty of God's character on display in the person of Jesus, and the more you say, I want to walk as he walked. I want to follow in his example. I want to follow his lead. And so we say, Jesus, I am yearning to live as you direct. And so love leads to obedience to the example and leadership of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to this final message, a new generosity. The more you love God, the more you want to give financially to his cause. Now, uh, some of you are like, no, he's going to talk about money in church. This is a sensitive topic, and I just want to acknowledge that. But friends, every once in a while, it is so important that we study and understand this aspect of the Christian life because it's important to God, and it should be important to us. 
And so let's, let's figure out this connection between love and God and how it results in a life of generosity to his cause. And the passage we're going to study is one that I just love. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you're inclined to read along in the chair in front, you'll find a Bible, and it's on page 1,162, 1162 of the Bible we provide. Two verses, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7. Let me read. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, but also writing to us, says this. Whoever sows sparingly. (laughs) You know, let me pause. As non-farmers, we don't have a clue what that means. What that means is sowing is planting. And if you sow sparingly, that means you plant few seeds in the ground. That's what it's getting at. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Well, you see that what Paul does in the context of challenging people to be a cheerful giver, he brings a farming principle into play. Sure enough, this farming principle says a lot about our heart and understanding of giving. And so as we work through this passage, let's highlight the farming principle. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. A farmer has to decide, am I going to be generous in spreading grain on my field to plant, or am I going to be sparingly doing that. I I never thought about this, but this is a very important decision a farmer must make. And it's a hard decision. Let's imagine the decision together, shall we? The farmer's got all this wheat. This represents his harvest. The majority of it is just cash for him to consume. You know, the farmer's going to turn some of it into wheat for his family to eat bread. He's going to sell the majority of it to others' families that will make it into bread. But the point being, the majority will be consumed and he will personally benefit. His lifestyle will be funded with this grain. But before he consumes it all, he says, oh, wait a minute. A portion of it I need to set aside. I'm going to put it in this basket here. A portion of it, I need to say, I need to save this for the harvest of next year. Because the same exact grain that can be eaten or consumed can have a very different function, and that's to be planted and transformed into future wheat. Now, the reason that setting it aside is hard is as much as he puts in this basket, he's not going to get to personally benefit from consuming that. It will never be turned into bread or cash, for that matter, at least directly. And so a guy who's like, man, I want to live it well this year. I want to maximize my standard of living, would be inclined to consume all of it. But if he is stingy, He's going to miss out. That's the principle that's going on here, is you have to have the foresight to take a loss today for great benefit tomorrow. 
the grain that's set aside for sowing, it seems like it's lost. Imagine, it's going to be scattered on the ground, thrown away. It seems like it's lost. It's going to be buried in the ground. But the farmer who understands says, oh, that's not lost at all. It may be lost from my immediate grip, but I know that a miracle of transformation is going on beneath the surface of the soil. And that invested, given grain is going to yield the most beautiful harvest eventually. Friends, the, the, the parallel to giving comes in this way. God says it's kind of like that. Just as the far, farmer has to give some to the great harvest, so we've been called to give to the great harvest of God. And just like the farmer you know, struggles to let that go because he won't be able to consume it, so we, when we give, we're like, ah, oh, it's lost. It's not mine anymore. I earned it. Now it's gone. But if you have eyes to see, you will realize it is going to reap a spiritual harvest of lives change and kingdom impact that is so beautiful. And actually, personal blessing for you as well. We'll, we'll get into that in just a moment. All right, let's continue in our text. Let's highlight this phrase. Each of you should give. Each of you. Who is that including? It's a reference to all believers, all of the believers at Corinth who Paul originally wrote to, and all of us who are believers. Each of you should give. One of the temptations in this topic is to let those who are enthusiastic about giving supply the needs of the church. You know, they... Some folks are like, I love being a Christian. I love so much of life with God. I just don't like the money part. So I take a pass on that. I let others who are enthusiastic about that do that kind of thing. That's not God's plan. God's plan is that each of us, every one of us, submit this financial part of our lives to the Lordship of Christ and give generously as a result. In fact, I would argue that it's one of the most important aspects of the Christian life. I would also add it's one of the last aspects of the Christian life that we do submit to the leadership of Jesus. I found as people follow the Lord, they will obey him in a hundred ways until it comes to money. They're like, I'm not going there, I'm not going there. And finally, the Lord is patient. But in our growth, we get to a place where we say, yes, I will follow you in this as well. That's God's plan that all of us Dive into this aspect of the Christian life, being generous. Let's go on. It says, each of you should give what you have decided. That's an interesting word there, this word decided. What have I decided to give? You know, our New Testament is translated from the original Greek that it was written in. And the original Greek word that's translated decided is is proeromai and proeromai means to deliberately choose to make a calculated choice it talks about a a process of careful consideration about what one does this is important because some people give uh impulsively some people give because of the emotion of the moment. They get carried away. Some of the telethons and fundraising strategies are based on playing on people's emotions. You know, when they're all lathered up in this weeping spell, they're given a commitment card, you know, and they make commitments that they have no business making. God says, no, no, no. I want you to think about it. I want you to agonize in thought and prayerful reflection on the word and 
discussion with your spouse if you're married and, and work together to come up with a decision that is not emotionally arrived at, but thoughtfully arrived at, and that you give the amount that you can live with, that you feel good about. Not too much, not too little. This is what we have decided. And that, that brings up a good point. How much, as we wrestle with, should we give? How much should we give? Well, one thing I would point to is in this context, it says, whoever gives generously, reaps generously. I think one word would be generously. We are to give, God wants us to give to his cause generously. And you say, well, that's not helpful. What's generous in God's eyes? I don't know. Well, the Bible's helpful here as well. Throughout the Old Testament and even into the New, there is a historic benchmark for what is generous in the eyes of God, and it's called the tithe. You've heard that term before? We even talk sometimes about giving your tithe. The word tithe literally means the tenth. And 10% for God followers for thousands of years have given to the Lord based on this expectation of generosity. In the days of Abraham, he tithed. Moses actually made it the law in Israel. It was the law that you tithe. Now, people have pointed out we're no longer under that law. And that's very true. But when we seek to understand what God views as generous, it's still a benchmark so many of us find helpful. The 10% is what God over the centuries has been looking for. And so let's do something here. Let's imagine that this is a basket that represents 10%, okay? Uh, 10% goes to the Lord. In fact, the Bible calls it first fruits. In the Old Testament, the fruit of their harvest, they would take 10% and it would be the first that they offered to the Lord. The first 10% went to him and then they would figure out how to live on the other 90. You know, many Christian financial planners have argued another principle and that's the principle of saving. Saving is very biblical. It's found in God's word. And they have said a 10% saving commitment is very advisable for retirement, for unexpected financial emergencies that arise. Maybe some of it is to help the kids with college. 10% saving. Well, that makes sense. 10% giving, 10% saving. Here's the problem. The problem is if you give 10% and save 10%, what is left to live on is 80% or eight bushel baskets, which sounds fine until we recognize that we have developed a 10-basket lifestyle. And when you've been living on 10 baskets and you try to live on eight baskets, that's really hard. We've been driven to a 10-basket lifestyle by our culture. Do you realize our culture is pushing us all the time by their example? The people around us are driving that car, and any decent human being these days will drive a car like that and live in a house like that and wear clothes like that and go to vacations like that and do this or that. And this cultural pressure is causing us to maximize our lifestyle within what we're capable of income-wise. And the result is we got 10-basket lifestyles. And the only way we're going to find the capacity to live wisely and follow God is to reduce, to simplify, to say no to some things so that we can reduce our living down to eight baskets. 
so that we have one for saving and one for giving. My wife and I, these days, are asking ourselves, how can we simplify? We feel the pressure to you know, increase and increase our lifestyle more and more, but we're asking the question, how can we live on less? Lord, don't let me get swept away that that's a must, that's a necessity. It's not. In fact, that's something we're going to choose to say no to. And we're going to go against the current, against the trend. And we're going to simplify so that we can do, you know what this has been called is the 10-10-80. And Jen and I live the 10-10-80 plan. Uh, and, and, you know, simplification and painful sacrifice is necessary for us to do it. Now, when I say 10-10-80, I want to clarify the Bible doesn't lay out 10-10-80. This is a very easy to remember and very helpful financial strategy but truthfully, it's something you got to decide. In some cases, there are some people who say, God is calling me to give more than 10%. I've been richly blessed, and I want to maximize my life's impact for the eternal cause of Christ, and so we're going to give more than 10%. Others, you know, are like, we're at a later stage of life. We don't need to be saving at 10%. We can do less than that. So again, 10, 10, 80, you know, use it if that seems wise, But the important thing is that you decide with God, wrestling over, Lord, what would you have our financial plan look like? All right, let's move on. It says, you have decided in your heart. This reference to this decision being in the heart points to the private nature of this financial decision. It's God's plan. Now, I know there are some organizations and some churches even that are into public recognition of donors. Have you ever seen like wall, donor recognition walls, you know, and they've got brass plaques with names engraved and here are the puny people, they're bronze level and then there's silver level donors and gold level donors and those we really love, the platinum donors, you know. Friends, you're never going to have your name carved in a wall at the Compass Church. Never. Ain't going to happen. God says that this should be a private thing so that our motivation's not junked up. If we're getting kudos from people, that's going to result in us potentially pursuing it for the wrong reason. God says, this is between us. God says, look me in the eyes. I know what you're giving. Submit to my leadership and I will be delighted in your obedience and you don't need the applause from others. My affirmation is enough. All right. Uh, In your heart to give, not reluctantly. Let's say it like that. So much giving is done reluctantly. And God says, no, that's not the way it's to be. So many people feel... Uh, arm-twisted and guilted, and they're like, all right, all right, fine, fine, what do I got? Let me see, you know. And they'll, hey, I did it, get off my back, you know, and it's a reluctant thing. God doesn't want it reluctantly done. When it's a love thing, when, he, when you really love the Lord, you do it not reluctantly, but enthusiastically. Can you imagine a guy proposing to a girl and giving a ring reluctantly? You know, I know it's a tradition to give a diamond ring for crying out loud, you know. And it's my hard-earned money. I don't want to do this, but I guess I have to here. You know? <laughs> when you love, you want to sacrifice and give generously. And God says, I want you to want to give it to me. I, I think God would say, if you're reluctant, 
don't give. Don't give. You're getting the wagon before the horse. You're getting it all wrong. You need to focus on your relationship with the Lord because when you really grow to love God, you're going to want to. You'll say, I'm not being forced. I'm, I'm horrified that this aspect of my life is not right. It's not according to God's principles. I am yearning to get into the 10, 10, 80. I want to live that way. And God would say, focus on the love relationship first. And then you'll want to. Because I'm not interested in reluctant givers. How about this next phrase? Under compulsion. Some people feel forced to give. Some, some organizations, churches, uh, nonprofits, they talk about your dues. Pay your dues. I've heard of churches where the pastor calls the congregants and said, I've been looking at the financial records. Lo and behold, you're not giving at a high enough level. Yeah. Rest assured, you will never receive a call from me in that regard because we do not believe God wants us giving under compulsion with human people forcing us to do it. Rather, this is the maturing of the relationship with the Lord that results in enthusiastic, non-forced giving. And this beautiful phrase captures it. For God loves a cheerful giver. You want to know something about the heart of your God? You want to know what he loves? God says, you know what I love? When a giver becomes somebody who delights in giving. God says, you know, I remember how they started off. They were like, I'm not giving you a dime. You know, I, I committed a religion and money. I'm not going there, you know. And, and they were so against it, but they grew to know the Lord, to love the Lord, to understand the significance of his cause that is fighting to help souls find eternal life through Jesus Christ. And little by little, I'm getting passionate about this. It's becoming my life. And they mature to a place where they say, I desperately want to be a generous woman, a generous man. And God says, when they want it and they're finding joy in it, God says, I love it. I love it. You may say, I don't get it. I will never be. How anyone could be a cheerful, how anyone could find joy in losing money, I don't get it. You've worked so hard to earn it. If you give it, it's gone. It's no longer yours. And how are you going to be happy about losing? That's a good question. How can you be happy, cheerful, and giving? I think the answer to that question is found back in this farming principle. A wise farmer delights in committing grain to the harvest. In fact, uh, the wise farmer, he doesn't say, well, I suppose I got to give a little more to the harvest. He says, this is my favorite part of the grain. I I, I know I got to consume some, but my delight is seen in this grain that goes through that magical transformation that yields a great harvest. He gets, he is foresight to see the richer truth about this contribution, and he finds joy in it. Spiritually, uh, that's true as well. There are people who say, uh, I get it. My favorite part of the money I earn is the 10% that goes to the Lord. I, I wish I could do more there because I know the harvest principle. I give, the Lord gives the harvest. In fact, they would say, 
I know I give, the Lord gives even more. Jesus, this is a very biblical principle, the principle of the harvest. To the degree in which you give, so it will be given to you. It's as if God says, you can't be out generousing me. I will be more generous than you are, God says. I will meet your generosity with an overflow of generosity. In fact, Jesus taught about God's generosity in a passage I'd like to mention right now, and that is uh, Luke 6.38. This is Jesus teaching on how generous God is in this reciprocal giving. Give and it will be given to you, Jesus says. Now, I should point out that in the context here, this giving is not just finances. It could mean giving forgiveness, blessing people in any way. But when you give to people, to God, God will see to it that it is given to you. How much? Look at this. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Now, that verse makes no sense if you're not a farmer. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. But in an agricultural society, they're like, oh, I know. So in an agricultural society, when you say, I want to buy a bushel of wheat, a cheap guy would like fill the bushel, you know, an inch or two below the edge and say, here's your bushel. A generous person would press it down, pour it in, push it down to get rid of all the air pockets to get more in there. Shake it by shaking, you know, settle so you can get more in there. The passage says, running over. That's someone who's generous. That's a picture of God's generosity. I don't buy wheat in bushels, so I don't get that. But ice cream, I get. When uh, you go to an ice cream shop and they offer you three-sized bowls, and being responsible, you say, I'll take the small. Uh, that scooper has a choice. You know, sometimes they just put a little scoop in the small and they go here. And you can't argue with them. You ordered a small and you're like, thanks. But others... Have you ever been to an ice cream place where they like pack it in to that little cup and they scoop it and it's so big, it's hanging over the size and you're just like, God bless you, give me that. You know? <laughs> Some of you are concerned about the inconsistency of ordering a small to be calorically responsible and then delighting in it overflowing. You say, that doesn't make sense. Oh, it does. Think about it. When you ordered the small, that was your choice, Bravo. When they chose to make it heaping, that was their choice. That's on them. I'm just living with their choice, and I'm okay with that. You know? <laughs> but God says, I'm generous. Uh, pressed down, shaken, overflowing kind of generous. God says, you give, and I'll show you generosity that will out-generous you. Now, this principle of God's reciprocal generosity is exciting but dangerous Dangerous because some Christians have actually come to a place where they give to get. They give out of greed. Their generosity is really an expression of greed. To them, it's like a financial transaction. All right, God, I'll give you a buck, but you better give me two back. You know, and if it digresses to that, it's not generosity at all. You know what would help us? The Apostle Paul in this passage he describes the nature of the harvest. You know, when, when we give to God, what is it like when he gives back? Well, this verse in the very text we've been studying, uh, 2 Corinthians 9, now verse 11, it helps us understand what God gives back. It, Paul says, you will be enriched. Here's what you'll get. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. 
And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. All right, three things I observe. Let's highlight this. You will be enriched in every way. The the way God blesses is a multifaceted blessing. If you think it's just, I give you a dollar, you give me a buck fifty back. It's not just a financial transaction like that. God says, I have many ways I want to bless you. Maybe it'll be with joy, closeness with God. Uh, new opportunities, new people in your life, uh, new finances. Trust God to bless in the multifaceted way he knows is best. If it is financial, check this out, so that you can be generous at every occasion. Wait a minute. I thought I give and then you give back so I can have more. No, God says you give and I give back so you can be even more generous. You've shown yourself to be committed to the path of generosity, and so God is going to show himself to entrust more resources to you so you can continue in that path of generosity. In fact, God is looking for people he can trust with money. If we're greedy, the Lord's like, hey, that's not good. But if we have really embraced the path of generosity, God says, ah, I can bless them more because their increased capacity to be generous will result in greater measures of generosity. I, I pray, and maybe you should pray this too, Lord, make me the kind of person that you can trust with stewarding resources well. Let me increasingly grow in this art of generosity because you have found me trustworthy in that regard. One more thing here, and that is it will result in thanksgiving to God. Paul says, through us, Paul's saying, when you give, we see that it's stewarded in the church and the result of that money ministering to the people in the church and the church getting strong, it brings praise and glory to God. The thing that should delight us most of all about giving is we know it advances the fame and the praise that God receives. And that's the lover of God wants more than anything to see God's cause advance and more people praising, loving, thanking him. And they love when the harvest yields that. I got one more verse about grain to read. And this is from the Gospel of John. John 12, 24, Jesus speaks of a kernel of wheat. He said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus understood farming. In this passage, he's referring to himself as a kernel of wheat. And Jesus says, my life is like a kernel of wheat. I I am tempted to keep it. If If I kept my life and said it's mine, it would remain only a seed. But if I give my life, if it falls to the ground and dies, he's referring to his crucifixion. He said, just as the wheat has a miraculous transformation into a beautiful harvest, so the giving of my life will yield so much fruit for so many people. Friends, Jesus is the manifestation of generosity for us. We are who we are as Christians because of the generosity of Jesus Christ. We are God's children. Heaven is our home. This life we have, it's all because of generosity. And the one who was generous for us has invited us to follow in his way, be generous as well to his cause. 
And when you see what Jesus has done, you're like, yes, Lord, for me to be greedy in response to your generosity is unthinkable. Jesus, I'm following in your ways. Teach me how. Let's pray. Lord, uh, I just ask for your ministry in our hearts in this moment. At all four of our campuses, Lord, would you stir? How are we doing, God? Stir us. Tell us how we're doing. Does our generosity need to increase? Does it need to decrease? Would you show us and guide us? Because, Lord, we want to follow you in every way, including finances. Take our lives, Lord, all of our lives. Truthfully, Lord, it's not the 10% that's yours. It's the 100% that's yours. We've been bought with a price. We're all yours. So have your way. Lead us. Help us to become the cheerful givers God loves. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.